Hey everybody, welcome to Your Move. I'm Andy Stanley. One of the best questions a leader can ask the people who work for them is this, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? And you know who I learned this from? Stick around and I'll tell you right here on Your Move. Today, um, we are introduced to what I think is perhaps the most powerful, the most transformational, certainly the most inspirational leadership principle um, on the planet. Um, Every single leader that you know that you have respect for, every single leader that you respect actually practices this principle, and every leader that you don't respect doesn't. And you can lead without it, but you will not be a leader worth following without this principle. And this extraordinary concept actually explains in part, or at least partially explains, why a first century Jewish cult, a first century Jewish cult following a crucified leader with no territory, no military, and no authority, not only survived, but thrived in the first and second and third century, and were eventually embraced by the very empire, the very empire that tried to eradicate it, to exterminate it. We've said throughout this series that Jesus came into the world to introduce something brand new, something brand new to the world and something brand new for the world. That what Jesus came to introduce was a radical, radical, radical departure of everything that was in place. It was a radical departure of the ways of the kingdoms of this world, including the way that the world exercised authority and leadership. And on the religious front, and on the religious front, it meant that Jesus had to replace everything that was in place because the religious systems of the first and second century, in fact, the religious systems of every century, the religious systems even of this century are oftentimes predicated upon or built upon the very structures of the kingdoms of this world. In other words, they're all top down. But the value system and the movement that Jesus came to begin and launch, the brand new thing, the brand new movement he started would actually be upside down. Now, back to our story. The miracle that caused the most disruption during Jesus' ministry was when he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. This is a very famous story. If you grew up in church or Sunday school, you've at least heard of it before. The reason it was so disruptive and the reason it caused such controversy is that Lazarus was a well-known man within the city or the village of Bethany. But not only that, Lazarus was known outside the village of Bethany. But the thing that made the, 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 the reason this miracle caused quite a stir or such a stir wasn't that Lazarus was dead. He was like dead, dead. Like he was already embalmed and entombed dead. They had already had the funeral dead. This wasn't a, oh, I'm not sure she was dead and he raised her back to life. They'd already sung the song, hired the mourners. They were finishing up the funeral when Jesus finally showed up. In fact, it's one of the most astounding narratives in the whole New Testament. You should read it for yourself because Jesus finds out Lazarus is sick and his guys get up going, hey, let's go to Bethany because surely you're gonna heal your friend Lazarus. Jesus says, sit down, we're not going. And they're like, what? It's, it's so disturbing. Jesus shows up at the end of the funeral and raises a man from the dead who's already been entombed. In fact, this was such a big deal that Bethany actually became a tourist attraction. We're gonna see in just a few minutes. People went to Bethany to try to do a Lazarus sighting because this, this story spread all over the place. In fact, the scripture says that the word about Lazarus being raised from the dead spread rapidly. And some of those who spread the word went to the Pharisees, 
and told them what Jesus had done. So this word, this went all the way to to Jerusalem. The temple leaders heard about this. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And here's what they concluded at their meeting. They said this, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. Now, in our vernacular, we talk about Jesus performing miracles, but these guys were clued in. Jesus was not simply performing random miracles. Jesus was performing signs, and a sign points to something. And these guys understood what Jesus was pointing to. He was pointing to something entirely new. And here's what they concluded. And how arrogant this statement is. If we let him go on like this, if we let him go on like this, everyone, everyone will believe in him. And what will the problem be? What's the consequence of that? Because they understood something we miss. And if everyone follows him and if everyone believes in him, eventually the Romans will come and they will take away our temple and they will take away our nation. Because what Jesus is introducing is radically new. If everybody follows Jesus, nobody will need us anymore and they won't even need the temple. They understood what we oftentimes miss, that Jesus came to replace everything that was in place. And in the end, that's exactly what he did. So a few days before Passover, Jesus is still trying to quietly make his way around the city, stay just far enough away from the city as not to cause any problems, but at the last minute be able to enter the city for Passover. And during his wanderings, he goes back to Bethany where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And the text says this, that a large crowd, we went from crowds to large crowd, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany and they came to Bethany, but check this out. Not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. He's a tourist attraction whom he had raised from the dead. So this is how desperate this group got. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Why? Because he's evidence that something new has happened. He's evidence that this is a real thing. It's evidence of the fact that Jesus is about to overwhelm the entire religious system if they don't do something to stop him. For on account, For on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now this is a very important point that's not the point of the message, but I don't want you to miss this because some of you have abandoned Christianity, you grew up in faith, you walked away, and because the version of faith you you grew up on was was a version where you just had faith in faith and you just had to believe and you checked your mind at the door and you checked your intellect at the door and you checked your science at the door and you checked your justice at the door and you just had to believe and believe and believe. And I just want you to know, first century Christianity, the original version was not about believing in belief. It was evidence-based. The reason people began to follow Jesus was not faith. The reason they began to follow Jesus was something they saw. The text goes on, it says this. So the next day, the next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival, that's Passover in Jerusalem, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So, so the point of all this is everybody's talking about Jesus. In fact, Jesus at this point might've been a little more popular than Passover itself. People in the city are looking for him. People outside the city are following him. There's so much emotion. It's beginning to crescendo and build and build and build. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the group that were trying to arrest him, they said, look, 
This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They had no idea. Here's what happened. The text says they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And again, again meaning he'd already had this conversation with him once. He wanted to have it with him one final time. This wasn't the first time. So Jesus, the text says, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. And Jesus takes his guys, he steps off the road, he goes over in an orchard perhaps to sit down under a sycamore tree and making that part up. And Jesus wants to have one final conversation with the guys before they get to Jerusalem. And here's what he said. He said, guys, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. I mean, they've been trying to get to me the whole time. They're about to get to me. And they will condemn him, talking about himself. They will condemn him to death. And he'll be handed over to the Gentiles or the Romans. The Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. You got it? And this is, the, and they're sitting there thinking, what is he even talking about? I mean, this is unimaginable. I mean, we got the momentum. I mean, we got the crowd. We got one crowd with us. We got another crowd waiting for us. Word has reached Jerusalem that you're on your way. Something great is about to happen. So we're not sure exactly what you're talking about. So Jesus finishes the little talk. They stand up, they head back over to the road to continue to Jerusalem. And a couple of guys hang back and they say, Jesus, um, we need to talk to you for just a minute. And the text says, then, 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 like right then, like as soon as Jesus finished this speech about all the bad things that are gonna happen to him, right then, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and they said, teacher, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, that's too bad about the spitting and mocking and flogging and dying. That sounds horrible. But anyway, uh, we need you to do us a favor. Like right then. So Jesus says, what, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they kind of look over their shoulders. They don't want the other guys to hear. And they say, well, look, would you, would you let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in your glory? In other words, can we have positions of authority in your coming kingdom organization? Because after all, we know that's where this is headed after the spitting and flogging and you know, whatever all that was about. And Jesus says to them, he's so patient. He says, guys, you, you don't know what you're asking because he knew and they would discover that gory would precede the glory. And they respond, no, 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 sure, we can handle it, we can handle it, we can hang with you, you just tell us what we need to do. We are with you, we wanna be number two and number three. But they were wrong because when Jesus is arrested before he has spilt a single drop of blood, they run. When the other guys overheard this conversation, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, this doesn't mean they're offended. How could you say such a thing to Jesus after what he just told us? No, it's the opposite. It's, hey, wait a minute, what about us? We wanna be number two and number three and get out of my way and I was here first and I'm Peter and I'm the older and now you have Jesus' disciples. I mean, they're you know, probably hours away from entering the city of Jerusalem. Now they're having an argument over who's gonna be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, in Jesus' movement, in his ecclesia. And Jesus just rolls his eyes like, I think I picked the wrong guys. 
And the text says that Jesus called them together again. It's like, okay, everybody off the road, back over in the orchard, under the sycamore tree. We'll be back in just a few minutes, folks. He said, guys, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, you know how they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? And the Greek text here uses two Greek words that are rarely used anywhere else in the Greek language, which means the author is trying to make a very specific point. And his point is this, he says, guys, you know how authority works. The person at the top has all the resources and all the power and all the leverage flowing up to them. And they leverage their power for their own benefit, regardless of what it means for the people under them. You know, you know how that works. You know how Gentiles exercise authority and the 12 are sitting there going, uh-huh. We know exactly how it works. When you're on top, you get more stuff than the people on the bottom. When you're on top, you leverage your authority to get from the people further down what you want and what you need for you. We know exactly how it works. And then Jesus looks at them. I don't know, he may have shaken a finger at them. And these next four English words, these next five Greek words are so powerful. And they're words that we must take to heart. But more than that, these are words we have to take to work. And these are words that many of us need to take home. And here's what he says. He says, you guys know how it works? Yep. Not so with you. Psst. Not so with you. What I'm introducing, guys, is brand new. What I'm introducing is completely different. What I'm introducing is su such a departure from the kingdoms of this world that resources and power and authority will be managed differently in my ecclesia. And if you're gonna be a part of my ecclesia, if you're gonna be a part of my movement, guys, you gotta get this right, you gotta get this straight that power and influence is not for the powerful and the influential. We are flipping it upside down. In my movement, the power and influence will be used for a different purpose and with a different person in mind. Instead, he says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you, pause, whoever wants to be great among you, and I think he could have looked at them and said, okay, guys, do you wanna be great? And two of them had already tipped their hat. Do you wanna be great? Okay, if you wanna be great, raise your hand, guys. All of them are like, we wanna be great. Good, as he said, it's good to wanna be great. If you wanna be great, if you wanna to aspire to greatness, if you wanna be an official, if you wanna be a leader, if you wanna be somebody with influence, that's great. How many of you wanna be great? And finally, all their hands are up. While their hands are up, he says, okay, in my kingdom, this is how it works. Whoever wants to be great, must be your servant. All the hands came down. They shuddered. They looked around. Wait, servant? See, for us, servant's a concept. For them, they knew servants. Their families, many of their families had servants. Matthew, the tax collector, had a lot of servants. And Jesus said, if you're gonna be great in my movement, then you must take the position of a servant. That is, you go to the back of the line to which they thought that's not fun, to which Jesus could have said, I'm not done. And it gets worse. And whoever wants to be first must be slave, servant. At least they get paid. Must be slave of all. That's the back of the back of the line. And they're quiet. Jesus said, you wanna be, be in my deal? You wanna be leaders in my deal? You should have known by now, guys, my, my world is an upside down world. 
My kingdom is an upside down kingdom. I've come to replace all that is in place, not only the kingdoms of this world, but even the religious structures of this world. And before they could object, before they could leave, before they could ask any tough questions, Jesus said, look at me, look at me. For even the son of man, talking about himself, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. My opinion, I think every Christian should memorize this statement. I think every Christian leader should memorize this statement. I think if we got this right, something would happen in our communities. I know it would happen in our families. But this is Jesus saying, guys, let me take all your excuses away. I am your leader, and even I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many, and they had no idea what was coming. They had no idea that he literally meant he was gonna lay down his life. And soon, they would be confronted with this overwhelming, powerful, transformational idea that Jesus, Jesus was the king who came to reverse the order of things, to reverse the order of everything, that he would be the king who would lay down his life for his subjects, and then he would say to his subjects, I'm not asking you to lay down your life for me. I'm asking you to lay down your life for one another. And the amazing thing about this is that these guys got it. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four gospels. After John, we get to the book of Acts that tells us what happened after the resurrection. In the book of Acts, there's a problem in the church, the early church. You know what the first problem in the early church was? These guys are spending so much time serving food to widows, they can't get them to take a break to teach everybody else what Jesus taught them. They finally literally had to pry their fingers off the serving trays to get them to teach because they were the only ones who knew what Jesus taught. They got this. They were reluctant not to go to the back of the line. But I don't think they got it during the little speech. I think they got it the next day because the next day they finally get to Jerusalem they finally get to what's called an upper room and they just, they're having this Passover meal together. They've just come through a parade of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, they are close to Jesus and people are essentially proclaiming Jesus, Messiah, in Jerusalem on Passover. I cannot exaggerate the emotion and the controversy this created in the city of Jerusalem. They are literally, they are famous. They are sought after. And now they're together celebrating Passover and they can just imagine what the next day may hold for them as Jesus surely is about to proclaim himself king. And they're eating the Passover meal and Jesus is saying some odd things and then Judas went to run an errand nobody really understood, you know. And suddenly Jesus stands up and he takes off his outer robe and he wraps a towel around his waist. The text says he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And when he did, they panicked. They panicked because they knew what he was about to do. They panicked because none of them had thought to wash even their own feet, much less one another's feet. None of them had taken it upon themselves to find a servant to wash feet. They were so excited. This was such a heady moment. There was so much going on. And suddenly Jesus stands up and takes off his rabbinic robe and doesn't proclaim himself Messiah. He puts a towel around his waist. 
And and they're like, okay, we may have forgotten to do this, but there is no way in Hades, is how they said it. There's no way in Hades, we're about to let you wash our feet. In fact, Peter said, no, you shall never wash my feet. But he did. Washing feet takes a while. Washing 12 pairs of feet takes a long time. I think no one said a word after Peter finally settled down. All they heard was the dripping of water from that cloth is Jesus foot by foot, toe by toe, ankle by ankle washed their feet. They were completely humiliated. Think of it. They knew what those hands could do. They knew what those hands were capable of. They had seen Jesus do things with his hands that no one would ever believe. And there he was washing their feet. And he took this opportunity to illustrate the roadside chat. And when he finished, he stood up, put back on his rabbinic robe, wiped his hands, sat back down at the table. I think no one is saying a word. And here's what he said to them, to me, to you if you're a Jesus follower. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that is what I am. I am your teacher, I am your Lord. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I, Jesus, have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he restates that idea that even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he says it this way this time. He says, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. And you all, by the way, he would say, are the servants and I've just declared myself master and you acknowledge that I'm master. So I'm the master, you're the servant and you're not better than me, are you guys? Peter, are you better than me? No, sir. John, you better than me? Uh Uh-uh, no, sir. Well, if you're not better than me, then you can never use who you are as an excuse not to serve the people around you because I just serve them not simply as a servant, but as a slave. And the messenger is never greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, he said, because I've taught you and now I've illustrated it. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In other words, guys, when you start thinking you're a big shot, You just go find some more feet to wash. Guys, don't ever forget this night. And they didn't. In fact, in the years following the resurrection of Jesus, in the years following the resurrection of Jesus, the persecuted church did just that. In fact, their other's firstness, the other's firstness of the first century church was so strong and so out in front that it was actually appalling to the Roman and Greek culture that celebrated strength and victory and conquest. The idea that these people would put other people first, that they would leverage what they had for the sake of other people, that instead of using their power to become more powerful, they would use their power to empower people. This was, this was appalling. It was completely upside down. But over time, it actually became appealing and people flocked to the Jesus movement. Christians refused to abandon sick people. Christians refused to abandon the villages when the plague swept through and took just about everybody in the village out. And they refused to run because Christians were not afraid of death. 
And they took in abandoned and exposed children. And that compassion and their generosity and their other's firstness and their willingness to give and recognize the dignity and the equality of other people was staggering. And eventually it became contagious. And against all odds, a cult with a crucified leader with no territory and no military and no authority was eventually embraced by the empire that set out to destroy it. What if we just do that? It's not intuitive. It's not natural. It's so upside down. It requires me to look for an opportunity to go last. But let's be honest, when you see it, you admire it. When you see it, you seek it. And if you've ever had the opportunity to follow someone who models it, you respect them. And Christians, we are called to it. And I think when it comes to going to work tomorrow, I think when it comes to going home this afternoon, I think when it comes to, okay, what does this look like in my world? I think it all boils down to a simple question. It's a simple question that we should ask in every single environment and in every single relationship. It's a question that as a leader, I get asked often, but I don't ask often enough. It's a question that if you're the leader, you're the boss, you're the manager, you know, you run the franchise, you're the person, you're the man, you're the woman, you probably get asked this question a lot, you probably don't ask it enough. But in the upside down world that Jesus introduced to this world, it's a question that those of us with more authority and more power and more influence should ask the most. And it's this question, how can I help? How can I help? How can I leverage me for you? And as a Jesus follower, we should ask this question most and we should ask this question often and we should ask this question of the people who least expect it and perhaps who may feel like they least deserve it. And if you do, you will be like your father in heaven who looked down on this self-centered, me-first world and asked, what can I do to help? And then he sent his son not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And then he looks at you in the eye and he looks at me in the eye and he says, now Andy, you just lost your excuse. Go do for others what I have already done for you. Imagine, imagine what would happen in your family. Imagine what would happen in our community. Imagine what would happen in our nation if just the Christians fully embraced this idea. My friends, it rocked the world once. Perhaps it could change the world again. 
Well, thanks so much for listening to the Your Move podcast and be sure to check out our website where you'll find your next step, including resources like our free conversation starters based on today's episode. You can access those by simply clicking on the link in our show notes. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join us next time and we will continue to explore how to make better decisions and live with fewer regrets. Thanks for listening.